0: Love, talk, radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I am revving up with that research process right now, doing a lot of work on it. And uh, without further ado, our favorite guest to invite on to here. Mr. Carl Erskine of the Brooklyn Dodgers, former pitcher of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Carl, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, well, Sam, you uh, stir up a lot of memories every time I talk to you.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to do so, and, and of course, there's a lot of supercharged feelings out there and, and, and so much going on in the news, and the first thing we got to do is check on how you and your family are doing with everything going on.
1: Yes, well, I'm in Indiana, uh, just the northeast of uh, Indianapolis, the town of Anderson, where I was born and raised, and where my wife and I were in high school together. Uh, we'll celebrate our 74th anniversary coming up in October. So um, congratulations! We had a good match, <laughs> and we're fine. We're in a retirement village. Uh, I might add that uh, my wife is 91. I'm 90, almost 94. Uh, so our age has uh, favored us. We've had reasonably good health. And uh, now with the lockdown uh, and the pandemic, uh, we've gotten better acquainted than we ever have been in our 74 years.
0: That's amazing to hear. Uh, you know, you guys have been spending even more time uh, together than usual, I guess. You know, But yesterday you were able to venture out, it turns out, uh, for a haircut. First time in how many weeks?
1: Uh, eight, eight or nine, and well, uh, I had some curls I never thought I'd see, but they got all chopped <laughs> off yesterday.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it, and I'm glad to hear everybody's doing well out there. And and we're gonna stay in Anderson, you know, because uh, like we discussed before, uh, when we were talking about this specific show, I I've been doing a lot of writing regarding the the uh, years 1937 and 1941. Uh, you know, regarding Brooklyn and its Dodgers uh, prior to you arriving there, but I, I, I'm trying to get as in-depth of a look at that era as possible. So I, I figured I'd I'd uh, talk to you about your time uh, uh, from 1937-1941, but you know, we'll, we'll we'll keep it broad as well, just growing up in the 30s.
1: Yeah, true, and uh, you know, there's some uh, there are some parallels with today. Uh, which is now 2020, Uh, there are some uh, parallels with uh, the 30s when I was just a kid uh, in elementary school uh, growing up. But that was the the, the big depression back in the uh, late 20s and 30s. There's some similarities to how people are behaving. Uh, We didn't have a lockdown in those days, but everybody was uh, looking for a job. Uh, Jobs were scarce, and uh, unemployment was high. Uh, Everybody was poor uh, virtually in the neighborhood. So uh, I think about that, and you recalling those days, see, in 37, I would have been 11 years old. So uh, I have a lot of good memories about that era and what my life was like uh, growing up uh, as an elementary kid. Uh, in a town of uh, about 45,000 at that time and um so uh, it's it's good to chat about that well excellent uh, so
0: when when you think about that time of your life uh what's the first thing that comes to your mind of course you know by 1937 and and later you're starting you know baseball's starting to rev up for you uh, but but was there was there any interest before baseball that you can speak to? What, what are some of the first things that come to your brain?
1: Well, as a kid in Anderson, Indiana, basketball was uh, the king sport. Uh, basketball was uh, everywhere. Outdoor uh, basketball goals were seen up and down in all the city parks and uh, lots of basketball. So the, the hot button in my hometown uh, was basketball, and When I uh, got into high school, I went out for the basketball team, and uh, the Indian was our mascot. And if you could make the Indians, the Anderson Indians basketball team, I'm telling you, that was uh, one of the highest callings that you could get at that time. In fact, I even said this, and I think I really meant it, when I got the uniform to play for the Anderson Indians, in the wigwam, which was our big gym, uh, which would seat uh, close to 9,000 people. And uh, we packed that place. But when I got that uniform, I've said this, I think I got a bigger charge, a bigger thrill, than when I got my Dodger uniform. <laughs> <laughs> it was that big in in Anderson, Indiana at that time. So uh, uh, great memories for me growing up then. I, I liked all sports. Uh, people would ask me uh, what's your favorite sport I would always say whatever's in season and that was just true with kids my age we we played uh, tag football uh, we played basketball we played baseball in the street uh we didn't miss a beat uh with the, the sports so I was not uh so well known in Anderson for a long time uh for baseball because I'd be stopped on the street back in some of those uh, years when I got up maybe 20, 25. <clears throat> people stop me on the street say, Carl, I remember that game, and I would immediately think baseball. And they would say, Oh, that game against Muncie Central, uh, when you hit that shot from the corner, <laughs> 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 this, this was ingrained in people in Anderson, Indiana. And like so many sports venues, you couldn't get a ticket you, you had to live with the family that owned the ticket and it went from generation to generation <laughs> and even though we had a big had a pretty big gym uh, gymnasium uh, it was really tough to get a ticket because the season tickets were sell out every year and uh, so anyway, that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the culture. And at that time, uh, they had just won the state championship in '35 and '37, and so that was a big over. That we had some strong teams in those days. I did play uh, in 1944. I was a junior, and we made the final four uh, at the uh, state tournament. We did get beat. Uh, Our star player was injured badly, and uh, we got beat two points. Was uh, was really an upset but uh, but you just could not get away and even today there's some remnants of that kind of feeling about uh basketball was was certainly king and the Anderson Indians were a, a big uh one of the big the big ten not the college but the uh, conference for uh Anderson uh, we we were dominant in that conference for a number of years
0: and it's interesting about just thinking about the the history of basketball from a professional standpoint. You know, you're talking about basketball prior to the NBA, really. Um, and, uh, you know, as as slow, if, if you will, as the popularity of basketball has grown and, and to the point of possibly probably being bigger than baseball at this point uh, in the country, it's really always been humongous in Indiana.
1: It has been and uh it it's an interesting thing uh we had a, a a packing company in anderson meat packing company and they sponsored a team called the anderson packers and the anderson packers were in the nba back in uh late 40s early 50s uh, we were actually in the nba for a short period <laughs> Uh, in the Mikan wow. era when uh, Mikan was the big name in uh, pro basketball. And it was in the formative years of the what today is a, a broader and uh, more well-attended. But um, I used to uh, take some of the players uh, to the train when they were going to make a road trip, uh, and uh, they didn't own a bus, so they had private cars taking them. So I used to haul... Some of the basketball, uh, pro basketball hmm. players, uh, to the train, and uh, so Anderson. Even though it's a small community, it turned out that uh, the franchise was uh, able to be brought to Anderson, and the meatpacking uh, sponsor, uh, and made the Anderson Packers. And to this day, there, or at least in recent years, there's still one or two players off of that one of those early teams. Who stayed in Anderson, and uh, I knew most of them. Oh, that's <clears throat> excuse me, that's amazing.
0: Um, sticking in Anderson and and going back to the 30s, uh, I, I'm uh, curious as to what your parents were doing uh, uh, for for work back then. You know what 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 uh, what did your dad do? What did your mom mom do?
1: Well, before I was born, I had two older brothers. And during those years, which would have been back earlier uh, in uh, uh, maybe the 20s and and 30s, uh, my dad was a manager of a grocery store. And um, I'll tell you a quick side story. My dad had a good throwing arm. Uh, He loved to throw, and he played a little semi-pro baseball. But in those days, it was tough to spend time any place except making a living. But my dad was a manager of a local grocery store. And a train track went right behind the the store. So the story goes by all the old-timers that uh, guys would come in and say, Matt, Matt, grab a couple apples, come out there, come on. They would have him throwing at the moving uh, boxcars going by with the numbers. And he had a good arm, so they were betting on him throwing at the numbers uh, on the boxcars going by. (laughs) And we'd go to the county fair. My dad would never get past the dunk tank. And you could buy three balls, and he'd probably knock the guy down two out of three, and then he'd buy three more, and he'd buy three more. He would spend his whole paycheck at the at the dunk tank. <laughs> so <laughs> so I always admired my my dad who had a good throwing arm, and he loved to throw. So uh, I guess I got I caught some of that myself.
0: I guess so, for sure, it, and. At what point did your dad start honing in the baseball side of things for you uh, specifically? You know, obviously you're saying uh, that you kids would play whatever the sport was, whatever the weather was, basically. But at what point did your dad kind of show you form? How did that go?
1: Well, with my two older brothers and my dad, they had already, before I was born, uh, played catch by the side of the house and uh, so as I got big enough to play with them, so that would be around oh, 8 or 9 years old, uh, dad bought me a glove and so I played catch with my brothers and and my dad uh, and we played a game called uh, uh, let's see, how was that we we had a game in which pep- uh, we called, uh, what was that Oh, I'll think of it in a minute but Uh, we would throw the ball easy back and forth and then it would get a little harder and a little harder and we'd back up a little farther and a little farther and uh, finally we're throwing pretty hard for me as a, a little kid and I would reach up real high to throw as hard as I could to return the ball and that I believe is what caused me to be an overhand, straight overhand pitcher because playing pepper, playing uh, catch with my dad and brothers, they would pin me back to the barn with uh, throwing harder and harder. And I used to just get on my tiptoes and and raise up high. And I think that's where I developed the straight overhand delivery, which there was only a few in the majors. Warren Spawn was one. Um, directly overhand, straight over the top, and Colfax right. uh, was pretty much over the top. Right. And, but it was uh, it was not normal. Uh, normally, you would see a pitcher so uh, three quarters uh, rather than straight over the top. Uh, the more natural throw for most guys was just just off to the right, to the side. If you're a right-handed pitcher, uh, three quarters, but So that's how I got the first taste of baseball. And then there was a park league in Anderson. We didn't have Little League yet. It hadn't been introduced. So there was a park program by the Anderson City Park Department. uh, And they had a league for kids my age. So I started playing with a team. And uh, and I was a pitcher. Uh, And uh, let me tell you a little side story. Uh, when I was pitching at uh, nine years old and a regular-sized Diamond, and I go out to the, play my first game, and I had this brand-new glove my dad brought me, and it was very light-colored leather. And a big kid, named St- I learned later his name. Uh, then I didn't know him. He was a 12-year-old. You now, that's a lot of, uh, he's a big kid, too. Uh, Chet Porter was his name. I learned later. Uh, so when I came off of pitching the first inning, he was ready to go take the field, and he was a pitcher, and he says, Hey, kid, loan me your glove. I said, I can't loan you this glove. This is my dad just got it for me. He said, Give me your glove or I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> oh, no. So, you know, he bullied me right into giving, handing him a glove. He was 12 years old. He was chewing tobacco, and he took a big wad of that tobacco, and he spit it right in the middle of my yellow glove. <laughs> broke <laughs> broke my heart. I I was too I was too intimidated to fight him, but oh, did that kill me when he spit in my, my glove and splattered all over the inside of the, oh. of the glove in the pocket. And so I owned that glove for years. And it got dirty and dark. The weather all turned uh, after so much use. But where that splatter went, it was always darker than any other. I never lost it. It was always there. And as I grew up and got to know uh, this guy better, we laughed about that uh, as we got to be adults and we'd pass each other on the street or something. And
2: <laughs> I'd say,
1: Chet, Chet, I, you're not chewing tobacco, are you, today? <laughs> but it, it, in those days, it was not uncommon for uh, at least teenagers. Yeah, uh, uh, to to try smoking, but they'd also uh, try chewing tobacco. So so that was my first really heartbreak in baseball was to, to get that splatter in the middle of my new glove.
0: Well, you know, it, it was never considered uh, uh, bad. You know, obviously now uh, it, it, there's been uh, a trend to try to get players to stop chewing uh, uh, tobacco and, you know, I always, I, of course, I'm thinking about Tony Gwynn, who uh, died of throat cancer, and, and he thinks it's because he was chewing tobacco. But for so many years, I, it was just what you did as a ball player, right?
1: Well, the game was uh, macho. Everything about the game was macho. And uh, some of it was strange. For instance, a pitcher, if a guy bunted, attempted to bunt on him, the next pitch he'd knock, down, he'd knock the hitter down. Uh, and, and in other words, trying to uh, trying to bun on me. This is what you get. And and and, and, the, and the strangest thing was this is in pro baseball now. When I first started, a guy would hit a home run off the pitcher. The next guy in the lineup would get knocked down. <laughs> that was always that was always the darndest thing to me. The poor guy coming up behind a home run hitter, he gets he gets knocked down. Well, there was a lot of macho things, and one of them was the old timers. Now I'm telling you, when I when I went into pro baseball in 1946, after I got out of the Navy, uh, the the game was a macho game, and it was uh, it it was you had to they often said protect your own hitters. If the other pitcher threw at one of your uh, players, you were obligated to throw at somebody the next inning. I mean, it was just it was just part of the game. And uh, so I never believed in a knockdown pitch. I, I thought that was just it, – it was a give-up pitch. You can't hit me, I'm going to knock you down. So I'd rather strike the guy out than I would knock him down.
0: But, uh, right, exactly.
1: I, I, you know, and,
0: and it's funny because you, you – I, I, just thinking about this, obviously he's not from your era, but Bob Gibson – was one of really, I guess, in many ways, one of the last pitchers that, that was allowed to be vocal about it. Uh, you know, now nowadays you have to, you, you legally, basically, according to the baseball laws, have to say, oh, it got away from me. You can't, you can't say that. You know, look how many, how, how what what the response was when Noah Syndergaard threw, you know, uh, uh, threw at somebody's head in the World Series, and he he said he he was aiming for it.
1: Well, I there. I had four instances, at least four instances, uh, in my twelve seasons in the big leagues, where the manager ordered me to throw at the hitter. Now, not not to hit him. Uh, it wasn't intended to. It was not intended to re- injure him, but it was intended to to get him out of his uh, dug-in stance and a uh, uh, good hitter. He, he never threw it at uh, a poor hitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, was a right, right. that was a waste of time. <laughs> but I never believed in the, the knockdown. But uh, I, I'll tell you this, in a 53 World Series, I was pitching a third game, and uh, dressing our manager, called me in, and he said, uh, Carl, I'm going to tell you something to do. I'm not going to ask you to do it. I'm going to order you to do it. Uh, I don't see you do this much, but I want you to do it now to now. I'm going to order you to do it. Berra, Yogi Berra, is digging in so so much with his left uh, foot. On, and he wants to lift one over that short porch in uh, Evans Field. Uh, it was only 297 down the right field line. But we had a 30-foot uh, screen. Uh, and I had to hit it over that. But a uh, good fly ball over the right field was a, was a home run. So he said, I want you to get a strike on Berra and I want him flat. I want you to knock him down, and I want you to do a good one. Well, you know, if somebody else's idea is not so easy to to do if it's not your own idea. But So anyway, Yogi comes up. I get a strike on him, and I threw a pitch inside, but I got it too low, and I hit him in the ribs. So he took first base. So dressing the next inning when I went to the dugout, He said, that's the lousiest knockdown pitch I ever saw. So I want (laughs) you to get a strike on Barra, and I want you to do it right the next time. Next time he's up, if nobody on, get a strike on him, and I want to see him flat. Well, the next time up, I got a strike on him, and I threw a good high inside just back of his his, uh, right shoulder. He should have gone down, but all he did was turn away, and when he turned away, his elbow was right in line with that, that pitch, and I hit him in the elbow. So I hit him twice in that World <laughs> Series game. So let me tell you this. Yogi and I, I think this is official. Yogi and I share a record in the World Series. It was the only time, I was told by the writers, it was the only time in World Series history that the same pitcher hit the same batter twice in the same game. <laughs> so I think Yogi well. and I share a World Series record. You know, it's it, it's hard not to go
0: down that rabbit hole when talking about Yogi Berra. So I I, I want to ask you this: Do you think, in in some fashion, you know, everybody was always focused on on uh, a mantle in many ways, but of course, you know, Berra's got the ten World Series rings. He's got the record. But do you think, in some fashion, he's unsung? I, I I feel like every time I watch some of those highlights from '52 and '53, which are again, you know, I've been telling people like it's a it's crazy to think that you guys weren't able to get a World Series out of one of those two years, '52 or '53. Right. Do you think, like in some fashion, Yogi is 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 unsung? I just he's in he's in the middle of everything in all of those World Series.
1: Well, you know, when it comes down to Comparing teams, uh, pitching is usually the difference between a team that can dominate another team. Uh, with Rashi, a right-hander, hard-throwing right-hander, and Allie Reynolds uh, on the Yankees, they were dominant pitchers, and that was a match against the Dodgers for the Yankees—a uh, good advantage. And I think that's one of the reasons they, they were uh, that we had trouble beating them in a series which we finally did in 55, but uh, we faced them five times in New York, uh, five World Series, and uh, we only won one of the World Series. Uh, now, your question about Yogi. Uh, you, where Yogi, uh, he handled the pitching staff, number one, so you've got to give Yogi credit. Uh, a pitcher calls his own game normally, but the catcher has to give the signs because he can conceal them. But Yogi has to be uh, given credit for handling these uh, top pitchers and getting them the most out of them. So from that sense, he is unsung. The pitcher got the, the dominant uh, press, uh, and Yogi was, uh, the problem with Yogi was, for his sake, he was always looked at as a kind of a comic. I mean, with all these sayings, uh, yogi and all that, and it almost overshadowed his ability as a player. But he caught some of the greatest teams the Yankees have had. So you've got to put him in that class uh, as a player. Uh, yogi was a very adequate uh, catcher. Uh, and, uh, of course, he, he had good power and uh, and. Uh, Yogi, by the book we had in those days, was all in our head. Uh, we remembered how to pitch to different guys. It wasn't written down anyplace, and we didn't have the laptops and the rest of it to, to <laughs> keep all the records. But Yogi was what we call a bad ball hitter. He didn't have to have a strike to hit a ball in the seats. Uh, you pitch him too high, he, he could hit the high pitch. Uh, and you pitch him high outside, he did it the other way. Yogi was a bad ball hitter. Now, there's a lot of jokes about uh, Yogi. One of them is uh, he went up with the trademark on the bat turned on the backside, and the catcher said to him, you're holding the bat wrong, Yogi. You're supposed to turn that uh, that logo up so you can read it. And Yogi said, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> Yeah,
0: you know, it. it's funny the way with some of the, the things that he would say, he would simplify it. You know, he it's joked about, but a lot of times everything that he says rings true. <laughs> you know, it, he says it a little lopsided, but it makes perfect sense. And then he, he, he didn't come up there to read. He came up there to perform.
1: Well, a good example of what you're saying is that uh, I've been told that where Yogi lived, there was a uh, divide in the in the street, and it went around uh, maybe a big flower bed or something, and came back together on the other side. And so Yogi says, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so actually, actually, you had to take it, <laughs> and you're it came right. back on the same street. So some, you're right. Some of his uh, wisdom. Uh, of course, uh, the famous line was he goes to Kansas City and the, the crowd's real poor, uh, and the players are saying, where are these fans? Why don't they why don't they support this team? And Yogi remarked, look, if these fans don't want to come to the game, who's going to stop them? <laughs> Uh, they just they're
0: they're one after the other and they just make you smile every time and of course well
1: that's that's you know, why excuse me that's why I say Yogi he got a reputation that was not related to his ball playing and right. so and then with all the dominant names uh, on the Yankees in those days uh, he just kind of got lost in the shuffle but uh, when you name Yogi Berra to anybody today, they don't think about a Hall of Fame catcher and hitter. Uh, most people think about, oh yeah, I, you remember the one he said about, and that somebody re- remarks about one of his yogiisms. And so, uh, and I always, I always felt sorry for Yogi when he was interviewed uh, on national TV or brought on a show. Uh, the the MC thought he was going to get a funny man on the show. And so when Yogi comes on the show, they try to make him funny. He was not ever funny. He never told a joke. He never tried to crack wise. Uh, when he had these yogi they just kind of spit out of his mouth. And uh, and to him, he he was making a serious statement. But he made it in his own Yogi way. <laughs> but I always felt bad for Yogi on an interview show because... Uh, the MC was trying to make him, uh, make him laugh on every line, and it just wasn't Yogi. He was not a funny guy or, a, 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 you know, cracking jokes all the time. Right, exactly.
0: And um, I, I just want to uh, make sure that we we get to our caller. We do have a 914 area code on the line right now. Hello, you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan podcast and Carl Erskine. G-
2: gentlemen, good morning. This is Rob from... Uh... Originally, I'm from the Bronx, but now I'm just north in Westchester County. I spoke to you guys about two months ago, I think your last podcast. I hope you guys are doing well today.
1: Well, I'm doing fine in Indiana, thank you. Rob.
2: All right. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Mr. Erskine, I, I I really just want to let you know, I I appreciate uh, you taking the time and going on Sam's podcast as I am one of his followers on his, uh, on his Twitter accounts. And he's always uh, posting great stuff about New York city. And the last time I spoke to you, I'd mentioned every time I go on the, the bell parkway in Brooklyn and I see that Erskine street exit, I always think of you and, uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's it's great to talk to you, and I'm glad you're doing well these days.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Well, you know, to have that, uh, I thought that was a coincidence when that uh, street was named Erskine Street. But I found out from a New York paper, you know, uh, whether the safety board or whoever had a bunch of Dodger fans uh, and they named that street after me, I said, you know, uh, my roommate was Duke Snyder, uh, he's a Hall of Famer. My catcher is Campanella, Hall of Famer. Robinson, a Hall of Famer. Reese, a Hall of Famer. You know what? I didn't like the Hall of Fame. But I'm telling you, to have that street named after me in Brooklyn, <laughs> that almost tops a Hall of Fame. <laughs> how, it does. that?
2: The only other person, I think, is the uh, you know Mr. Hodges, who has the uh, – the uh, I think it's the uh, the bridge that crosses over into the Rockaways. Other than that, I think mm-hmm. it's it's just you, sir. So yeah, it's that's well, pretty and, awesome.
0: And I think also there's a lot of Jackie Robinson stuff all around the the city. Really, you know, even even well, I, I saw something about Jackie Robinson near the Polo Grounds, which actually tickled me.
1: Oh yeah, oh, oh
2: yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize there's something with him over there. I've been over there by the uh, that old staircase where they have uh, that memorial. But uh no I haven't seen anything with Jackie Robinson that area. But yeah, if you know where it is, I, I point don't it think out. It's, I don't
0: think it. it's right you know, I think it's just uh, uh it might be a public housing or something that's like, you know, somewhere in, in uh uh East Harlem, but it it was just like in the hundred and thirties, hundred and forties or something near near Madison or, or you know, so it's like it's not right next to of hollow grounds, but, but I, I do, you know, I, I was just on the Jackie Robinson parkway the other day. I, I unfortunately haven't been able to, to visit his, his gravesite yet, but, but um, yeah, it, it, and it, it is interesting to, to think about, you mentioned some other names, Carl, and, and there, there isn't, it, it's great that they, they've honored you, uh, but it, it is very interesting. You know, you don't see anything with Snyder. You don't see anything with Campanella and, and so many other uh, other players uh, of of that ilk, and it, it's I think it says it's not just it's not really necessarily about them, but it is a testament to what you've meant to the people of Brooklyn.
1: Well, you know, I I feel like I get letters now. I get a lot of mail, believe me. and I answer my mail, but that causes me to get more mail. But I get a lot of uh, Brooklyn people who are scattered all over the world practically, but who grew up in Brooklyn and who went to Ebbets Field. And uh, I'm telling you, I, I'm I I'm mar- marvel at me that I get this uh, much mail. But I'll tell you another connection with Brooklyn. I had the perfect name for the Brooklyn tongue, Oyskin, Oysk, Oish, who's who's <laughs> pitching? Phil Foster, the comedian. Who's pitching? Oyskin. They're trying to throw the game. <laughs> he, that that links me with with Brooklyn, uh, a few players, uh, a few players had a name that the Brooklyn tongue, uh, said it their own way. Well, when I joined the club in Brooklyn in, in 1948, uh, the first thing I heard at Davis field, when I went in with my duffel bag from the minor leagues, uh, I just came up from Fort Worth, Texas. And, uh, a, a, a fan in line uh, uh, buying tickets, and I went by him looking for the player's entrance, and I heard him say, hey, there's picks from Fort Worth. <laughs> and so so he tagged me in the beginning. And so all the time I'm pitching in Evans Field, where the fans are close to the field, and I could hear people in the stands talk to me uh, plain as if they were standing by me. Uh, encouraging me uh, boy always threw it through his head uh, That was that was, <laughs> and, that was one of
0: the comments And, uh, and of course Like you said you, you were never really a headhunter So it, it, that's a funny dichotomy Of that uh, as well Rob are you still there?
2: Yes I'm still here sir
0: Well Rob I, I just also wanted to uh, Tell you that I, I greatly appreciate Your support and, and your, your Encouragement thank you
2: Oh, you got it, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you for taking my call, Sam, and and Mr. Erskine. Thank you as always for taking the time for for these podcasts, and it, it's it's wonderful uh, to hear you tell all these stories of um, you know Brooklyn, and obviously a time before Sam and myself were born, which you know I hear through my my parents' older cousins who were teenagers at that time, and really. You know, their enthusiasm on their Brooklyn stories and when, you know, the the Giants and the Dodgers are in town, it really seemed like a special time, and I felt like, you know, uh, I really missed that on a heck of a a baseball era in New York. But it's great to hear the stories, and and thank you for taking the time, and it's good to hear the stories from you, sir.
1: Well, Rob, thank you. You don't know what a – I'm 90, almost 94 years old now. You don't don't know what a thrill I get to hear a fan – talk about the respect they have for the Brooklyn Dodgers and the great teams that we had in the 50s. So thank you for your interest.
2: All right, you got it, sir. Have a good day, gentlemen. Take care. All right, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: So, Carl, uh, and and thank you to Rob, Uh, greatly appreciate that. Um, Just talking about the fans and being on top of you, I'm wondering, was Hilda still around by the time you got there? Or was, oh
1: yeah. Was, I, yeah. Oh sure, <laughs> I knew I knew Hilda uh, and her cowbell. Uh, yes, she was a part of the uh, whole fabric of uh, Ebbets Field. That and the the uh, Sinf- symphony, the little band that played there. Those were two of the trademarks of Ebbets Field, and uh, yeah, I. I remember Hilda well. Uh, she'd get on people, and she'd yell. Uh, she, she had a, a loud voice, and she'd yell uh, from a box seat down close to the field. She'd yell,
0: "Hey Pee Wee,
1: look at me when I'm talking to you." <laughs> she had this rough. <laughs> she had this rough demeanor about her, and then she had this cowbell. And I do believe—I mean, I can't prove it—but I do believe the Dodgers. We used to have her a seat always, uh, and down front. She was, she was a part of the, uh, the flavor of being at Evans Field. So I think that the, the club used to provide her a seat, make sure she came every day. But uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well. And uh, well, I've I've heard story. I heard one of the stories was the fact that they um, she got the pan because her doctor. She had some heart issues, and her doctor. Uh, told her that she she had to stop yelling it was bad for her health and so she brought a pan to to Ebbets Field. but eventually you know they the pan was just too much for for them and so they got the, the Dodger uh, players and and coaches and they got her a uh a, the cowbell uh thinking it was going to be quieter
1: <laughs> No, it was about that it wasn't quiet you know <laughs> she was uh, she wasn't afraid to get on a player so uh we came out. Duke Snyder was my roommate, and we rode together uh, from where we lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, uh, back to the ballpark. So Duke got into a little slump, and uh, he, this particular night, uh, he struck out twice, hit a double play, I made an error in the outfield. And uh, so we let, we got beat that night, so we're leaving the ballpark. We came out of the side entrance where the players exited onto the street. And a lot of the crowd was out there waiting for autographs and stuff. But uh, we came out, Duke and I, and Hilda was waiting there. And she said, Duke, you're a lousy. Why don't you give up? I mean, she really was getting on Duke. So we walked down the side of Evans Field to Bedford Avenue, where that was the right field. And across Bedford was a uh, filling station, and that's where we parked. So we are going to, So we came to a, a street light, and we had to stop and wait for it to change. I mean a stoplight. And uh, Hilda was just cr- really at Duke, and Duke was just taking it without any response. But now we're standing on the corner waiting for the light to change, and we're, the, the street light is right there. And Hilda had kind of a gruff face, and she had a lot of fuzz uh, on her face. So Duke finally had enough, and he turned to Hilda. He said, Hilda, why don't you go home and shave?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Did, did, did Hilda say anything back, or you guys were, oh, were yeah, long she gone was, by then?
1: She, oh, that didn't bother <laughs> Hilda. No, she she was giving it to Duke uh, right and left. But that was a great line for Duke. And yeah. he, just, he just calmly said to her, <laughs> he didn't say shut up and go away, which he meant. He'd like to sit. No, he looked at her and said, "Hilda, won't you go shave?" <laughs> uh, it was. It's amazing how. Uh, you know, I mean, so did you,
0: did Hilda last until
1: the last year you guys were there? Do you remember her all the way up until '57? I think so. I don't remember any instant where we said, "Where's Hilda?" Uh, she right, stood up yeah. for most every game. Now, you do remember from history. I'm sure you've read it that uh, when it was announced finally that the Dodgers after the 57 season was going to move to Los Angeles uh the attendance fell off big time i mean um i always related uh the fan interest in the Dodgers it was a love affair and uh and you know when you're when you in love with somebody sometimes you can say some nasty things to each other but, but you get over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that was sort of the love affair with the Dodgers when they announced for finally they were going to leave or were leaving. Uh, it was like the fans said, ah, go ahead and leave. We don't care. You don't like us. We don't like you. I mean, it was a bitter parting, and there was only 7,000 mm. people in the stands. The last game was, I think I'm correct, I think there were like 7,000 people in the last yeah. game ever played at Ebbets yeah. Field. So it was just like filming their nose at, at the team and saying, "Go ahead and go, We don't care." And they really did care, and it broke their heart. Uh, the only thing is, I think O'Malley, he took the brunt of the uh, of, uh, hatred feeling. Uh, O'Malley actually tried hard in several ways to stay in Brooklyn, but the city fathers uh, would not they insisted on the Dodgers moving from Ebbets Field. Uh, out out to, uh, I think, where the Mets end up uh, building their stadium. That's where uh, Robert Moses wanted to put the Dodgers. Now, the irony is that some 60 years later, they built this arena for the Nets to play in on the very site that O'Malley wanted to build. He was going to pay for it himself to build a stadium and move the Dodgers from where they were on Bedford Avenue, uh, down to the where all the subways kind of came to.
0: The, yeah, the Long, the Long Island Railroad.
1: The R- Long Island Railroad. All right. Now the, the arena that's there right now, that the, the professional basketball team plays in. My understanding is it's a very site that O'Malley wanted uh, back in the fort, uh, back in the fifties, uh, to to build a stadium. So you could play this out by thinking, boy, if he had gotten that site, the Dodgers may still be in Brooklyn. Yeah,
0: a, yeah.
1: That might be a stretch, but, uh, but well, it's interesting.
0: interest. You know, there's so many different things that are said. I, I think you know my my opinion. We've been talking a lot about uh, some of the episodes lately. Have actually been a debate between um, a, an a, a fan who got into the Dodgers, uh, uh, actually from I, I believe he's in Illinois. Uh, another Rob, uh, shout out to Rob, and uh, but he he's kind of he just got swept up with the Brooklyn Dodger history, but he became a big uh, LA Dodgers fan. Uh, I, I believe you know he was born in like 1969 or, or early '60s or something like that. But um, apologies if I'm wrong, Rob. Uh, but but we we recently had a big debate, and and I think you know sometimes I like to fall into the middle ground because especially with. Shaping the character as I write him i 'm trying to stay as unbiased with Walter O 'Malley as possible, uh, even if there, there, there may end up being a certain angle, whether it 's protagonist or antagonist or antihero what have you regarding him. but I think you 're absolutely right when you look back at that entire era of thought process amongst white collar individuals. Uh, I think everybody's at fault for the Dodgers leaving, regardless if Walter O'Malley was was the, the, had the final say. Um, and and what's what's even more interesting, ironic, kind of a a, 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 a dagger to the heart, for some possibly, is that the mall across from the Barclays Center, the, where the the Nets play. Actually, kind of looks like it could be a ballpark. It, it, it's just a mall, but the outside is rounded, and and it's just it looks like a retro facade that uh, of of 90s ilk. The way they were trying to design them to look like they were uh, they they were built retro, uh, it, it, you know and. I've talked to some Brooklynites that when they do go by there, even though there is a sports franchise there now, when they see that facade for that mall, it it just kind of is a dagger to
1: the heart. Yeah, you know, the Mets uh, were born a few years after the Dodgers left, and I wonder how many Mets fans realize the colors of the Mets, which is uh, orange and blue. Uh, representing the Giants and the Dodgers uh, on their uniforms and on their caps. Uh, I thought that was a neat twist to, uh, mm-hmm. to have that kind of a tie with history and uh, for the Mets to uh, have the two colors of the Giants and the Dodgers. So, But, you know, it's not, um, it's, it's not fair in a way to blame O'Malley, but he's a symbol he, he, gives the, he gives the identity for the Brooklyn fans to spew out their displeasure uh, for him being the one to move. Uh, you know, there's a great line in a, a documentary called uh, uh, Flat, something about Flatbush. Uh, it says that uh, there, O'Malley was uh, with a Dodger fan uh, and uh, Hitler and uh, Mussolini, you've yeah. heard this, and the, and uh, O'Malley, and the and the guy had a, a pistol with two bullets. Who are you going to shoot? And uh, his answer, the Dodger fan answer was uh, O'Malley twice. Right. <laughs> well, you know, they, there's been a lot of reason for that to play out, and, and I always uh, seriously. But are moving abruptly from Brooklyn. We finally won the World Series in 55, and only two years later we're leaving this city. Uh, and I always related that to a young person who dies too young. Right. And that the memory lingers of this young person uh, and what they would be like and the memory. So I sort of think the Dodger fans saw this team leave abruptly it was like like death to a, a, a young person and uh, didn't get to fulfill their uh, complete uh, uh, kind of t- destiny in life and that's kind of how it's lingered uh, i don't hear that about the giants right uh, can you explain that sam you you see it from another perspective but well, I, I, I think
0: you, I, I think you 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 put it uh, perfectly in terms of how personal it was for the Dodger fan and how personal it was for Brooklyn. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, O'Malley left. They were the most pro, uh, you guys were the most profitable team in sports, uh, in baseball at least. Um, and and so with the Giants, they they were struggling mightily attendance wise at the time. They weren't winning as much as the Dodgers were. Uh, and, and and you they also had Willie Mays, and so when I'm talking to Giants fans regarding that, as well as Dodger fans who who are still who still hold it very close to the heart, uh, the fact that O'Malley, uh, uh, you know, just the fact that the Dodgers left, um, that's That's what we talk about. You know, I think it's it's the combination of of what the Dodgers meant to the the borough of Brooklyn, especially a borough that. Was reluctant to give up Its city uh, its cityship. Um and, and also And again just going to, to Willie Mays, Willie Mays seems to really Keep a lot of, of Giants Fans invested
1: Well I think that's true uh, Willie I get letters and often Questions and one of the questions Who was the toughest hitter And who was the greatest player you played With or against and things like That uh, I never hesitate To answer, that the greatest player I ever played against was Willie Mays. Now, you you got a lot of people are going to say, well, how about how about Mantle? How about? And but Mays could beat you so many ways. Uh, Yeah, he was a good hitter. He had a great arm. Uh, He had a great glove. He had great legs. I mean, he could he he could beat you so many ways. And I think Mantle would be one that we'd say, well, he's one of the most gifted players ever lived. True, but he was hurt a lot. And if you were gonna a manager and you were gonna to have to pick between Mays and Mantle, the the tipping point I think would be Mays would win because he was durable, and Mantle was injured a lot, played hurt and missed some games, and so. I always picked Mays as the most complete player that I ever saw. Now, boy, that's saying something when you could think that I played with Jackie Robinson and Duke <laughs> Snyder yeah. Yeah. and, and Pee Wee Reese and so on. But Willie could just beat you so many ways, and he would make plays that you could never practice. that That's what makes a real exceptional athlete, an athlete not only baseball but who does things that you can't practice? It's instinct. And Mays was, in his total career, he made so many plays that you couldn't, you could never practice. And that's because he had that extra, I don't know, extra sense, extra quickness, whatever it was. But I saw Willie make plays that were uh, the play you see over and over again when he. Vic Wirtz hit a fly ball in a World Series mm-hmm. and, he had a, mm-hmm. and the Polo Grounds had a huge outfield so Willie could run forever and catch it but that was that play was way down it wouldn't even make the top 10 of the plays <laughs> that Willie made it just happened to so, be that my, yeah I'm telling you uh, he was just that way now Duke Snyder was my roommate and I played or watched Duke play every day for 12 seasons and uh, he made plays that uh, no filming was done in those days. And uh, he'll talk. we can talk about plays that Duke Snyder made uh, that were fabulous plays, uh, never got recorded. But Willie had that big outfield in the polar grounds, and he could. He could run forever and catch a ball and then throw it <laughs> on the line from deep right field to right center to home plate. Uh, so... He was a complete player, and uh, I think Willie has gotten a lot of accolades. The one thing that he has in common with Babe Ruth, uh, I always thought about the both of them because I never saw Ruth play, but they always said Ruth had instincts, that he never threw the ball to the wrong base. He never made a a, a foolish error uh, in the game. Uh, That was the way Willie was. Uh, He didn't have to be taught. He seemed to instinctively do the right thing uh, every time, so I always figured that, that Willie himself uh, was probably the most gifted player uh, among so many great stars.
0: And, and it's it's interesting. I, I always think of when I'm hearing Willie Mays, and and you know uh, how durable he was. You always think I always go back to Leo Rocher talking about how the only player that would have given Willie a run for his money had he, he not been injured so much was Pete Reeser. Now, I don't believe, I think at, by 1948, Pete Reeser had been released, and, and I'll look that up just, uh, uh, just in case. But you guys never played together, correct?
1: I played, uh, I played with him one season. Then he went to Pittsburgh and played, played some, a little bit of Pittsburgh before. He, but he was having dizzy spells real bad uh, from all the concussions. Uh, uh, running into the outfield walls, so yeah, I played shortly with Pete, with uh, Pete Reeser uh, but
0: see, you I, sometimes it, it's sometimes hard to even remember that uh, uh, Pete, uh, Pete Reeser played till 1952.
1: Yeah, he he just had you know concussions were a result uh, in baseball uh, usually of collisions with other players or running into the Wall chasing a uh, drive and Reese. Uh, I remember Pee Wee Reese made a comment when they started uh, tearing down Evans Field. Uh, he said, Well, they won't have any trouble tearing down the walls. Uh, Pete's got them, uh, he <laughs> broke them in earlier. <laughs> but, but he did have, I, I saw him in Pittsburgh. He was a pure hitter. I mean, a pure hitter. And uh, he could still hit. Uh, He had a a double in uh, Pittsburgh, and he slid in his second, and he couldn't get up. He was so dizzy and so uh, disoriented uh, from the concussions he'd had uh, that they had to help him off the field. So uh, Pete, really, his career was cut real short because of, of the accidents he had hitting the wall. Finally, they padded the walls. And that really, Pete Reeser was one of the reasons they did that because he got injured so many times, uh, hitting into a concrete wall. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's one of the more interesting
0: uh, players to to cover just because there's not as much there because of his injuries. There's not as much spoken about him because the rest of the world wasn't able to see him the way they ended up seeing Willie Mays. And it's unfortunate. And I'll, I'd like to finish with this going back to one of the years that, that Pete Reeser made his name, 1941. Uh, you, you know, you, you, um, you're about, I guess at that point, you're about 15 years old. Is that correct? If, if you could yeah. not only cover uh, a little bit of, of what your life was like in 1941, but what do you remember? Not only about that season, but the Yankees and Dodgers playing each other in the World Series.
1: Are you talking about 41?
0: Yes, 1941.
1: 1941. Yeah, I was just going into high school in 41. Uh yeah, and my interest in baseball was broad a uh, broad interest because uh I didn't we didn't take a Sunday paper. Uh the neighbor, next door neighbor took a Chicago Tribune and they always saved a sport page from a because I cut out every picture I could find of a major league player. I didn't care what team he was on. If he's playing in the big leagues, he went in my scrapbook. But at that time, I was probably 14 years old and uh, going into high school. And, uh, of course, we didn't have TV in those days, so uh, it's hard to imagine life without television. But we, it was all radio, and uh, Lowell Thomas was a famous name uh, in the news at that time, 6 o'clock every evening, my father would have us all sit down and turn on our Philco radio. And we would all sit there and watch the radio listening to Lowell Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the way we did with baseball. Uh, all the plays were in uh, in your imagination. A uh, guy hits a double or slides into second or whatever uh, and uh, there were very, a lot of famous names of broadcasters in the radio days. Uh, some of them were uh, carryovers into the TV era, like Red Barber. But he had a, a quite a career on radio before uh, he became a, a, a play-by-play announcer for the Dodgers and later for the Yankees. But, um, yeah, in 1941, I was... <laughs> I was pretty I was a pretty young kid and uh not very worldly in my uh, experience but I did listen to mostly the Cubs games uh being living in Indiana and um, so it was only World Series that you would listen to uh the Giants or the Yankees uh I don't think I ever listened to Giants actually but I fell in love with the Dodgers because uh, when I was in high school, a junior in high school, um, I'm sorry, let me back up a minute. When I graduated from high school, the Dodgers invited me to come to Ebbets Field and work mm-hmm. out for mm-hmm. a week. And uh, then later when, uh, later when um, I, was, I had to go to the Navy right away, after that, and but when I got out of the Navy a couple of years later and the war ended, uh, I I had lots of chances to sign with the Red Sox, the Phillies, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, all were uh, offering me money, actually. Uh, nobody got bonuses in those days, but uh, the Dodgers did give me a bonus when I signed. But I wanted to play for the Dodgers uh, from the get-go because – They had invited me to Evans Field, (laughs) and that that trip to New York uh, for a kid right out of high school, uh, that that was a powerful influence. And so that's how I I refused uh, more money, actually, by the Red Sox and the Phillies uh, to sign with the Dodgers. But and I mean, and what do you
0: what do you remember about New York City? You know that that was post war. It probably, arguably, I guess, its economic height until recently. Um, what what do you remember about New
1: York post war? Well, of course, the Dodgers, beside uh, taking me to Evans Field to work out, they entertained me every evening, uh, uh, like Radio City Music Hall and all the all the big places in New York. So I got a good a uh, good taste of what New York was like with that week staying there on my own. Uh, let me tell you, I've always been grateful that I played in New York. Uh, it's the brightest light, the biggest stage. Uh, baseball at that time uh, in the 40s and 50s was the sport. It was truly America's game in those days. and uh, it. But to play in New York, with all the history there of not only baseball but other sports, uh, New York was a big stage. And I think that was principally uh, true for Jackie. I think Jackie got a lot more mileage as a first uh, African American to play in the majors. I think he got a lot of historic mileage out of being in New York. Not that other cities he wouldn't have been recognized as great, but uh, hey, listen, if you can make it, Frank Sinatra told us, Sinatra said, you make it there, you can make it anywhere. So I've always been, felt like I was double blessed to play in New York. And I'll leave you with one last question Did you play any baseball
0: in the armed services?
1: Well,. There's a story that now they have made a card, a bubblegum card. You got the story on the back. I tried to play for the Navy team. In uh, I was stationed in Boston Navy Yard, and uh, I got rejected by uh, a, an officer who ran the program. He said, "Well, we got a lot of a lot of pitchers uh, already, and the season's already started, so I don't I don't think we could use you." So he, he turned me down. Uh, a year later, I was out of the Navy, and I, I had a real fast trip through the minors, and I pitched a game in St. Louis and beat the Cardinals. I'm out on the field loosening up uh, the next night, and the guy's yelling at me from the stands. He's down by the rail. He kept yelling at me, yelling at me. Well, we weren't supposed to fraternize with the fans, so I ignored him till he just persisted. So finally, I went over and I said, Pal, what, is, what can I do for you? He said, I want, to, I want to tell you. I'm the dumbest SOB that ever lived. I'm the guy that turns you down to pitch for the Navy. And he, <laughs> said, he said, With guys like me making decisions, I'm surprised we won the war. <laughs> And that's, I think that's
0: that's a perfect, uh, you know, since we're we're now in our second hour, that's uh, a good place to wrap it up, uh, Carl. A- as always, we like to go to our final word, uh, but first, you know, before I, I pass it over to you, I just want to say thank you, as always, you know, we we you you always like you're you, there's only so much we can talk about, but I'm pretty sure it is
1: never ending, Carl. Well, for me, you know, I can't I can't quit being thankful. A skinny kid from Anderson, Indiana, plucked out of the little sandlot games that I pitched in to the big stage with the Dodgers in New York. I'll tell you, fantasy doesn't cover that. It's, it's beyond fantasy for me uh, to uh, win some games in New York and play with that great team. Uh, I'm forever grateful for that every day of my life.
0: And we are forever grateful for you, Carl. Thank you so much. Give all our best to you and your family. Thank you so much, as always.
1: Same your way. Thank you again. Bye-bye.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. Catch us next time. Take care. (laughs)